Hello, welcome to episode 41 of Scuttlebutt, a Marine Corps Association podcast. Today we got a special guest for you as a capstone to PTSD Awareness Month. Vic sat down with Dr. Adam Hunsaker, who is down at Fort Bragg, and part of his work as specializing in mental health is PTSD. So it's a fantastic listen. But before we get into that, I do want to provide a update on the long road. Uh, if you'll recall, a few episodes ago, we had Sergeant Major LeHugh on as he was getting ready to embark on a walk across America on Highway 20 the longest road in America, and they just passed Waterville, New York. Now, his uh, partner, Rocky, Rocky Kinzer, is kind of carrying the torch right now because as of just at this moment, on Monday, June 27th, Justin Lee Hugh is out with some illness, but he'll be back on the road quick, and they're looking forward to hearing from everybody along the way. So if you're on the path, if you're behind Waterville, New York, you've missed them. You've got to get back ahead of them, but they're coming down the road. Uh, they'd love to see us. So without any further ado, here is Vic with Dr. Adam Hunsaker. Enjoy. Hey, welcome back to Scuttlebutt, everybody. Uh, I'm Vic, uh, and I am here on a Memorial Day, and so I'm really privileged and honored to have uh, Lieutenant Colonel, former uh, Adam Hunziker here, uh, former uh, U.S. Army psychiatrist, now working private practice, and um, he's going to talk to us a little bit about some of his experiences, but primarily uh, what he's dealing with uh, with PTSD, mental health issues, and treatment, and, and symptoms, and just sort of helping us explore what um, trauma, combat stress, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder is, and especially as we are um, now into PTSD Awareness Month. Um, this is a really going to be just a very key I'm looking forward to it. I'm, I know I'm going to learn a ton, and hopefully our, uh, you guys listening are going to learn just as much. So, Adam, man, thank you so much for uh, for taking the time to be here. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you for the offer. I appreciate it. Yeah, for just sure. quick correction, Major Hunziker. Oh, Major. Okay, yeah. We'll definitely edit that part out. Take the promotion. <laughs> I thought uh, I thought you pinned on the the silver there. Um, well, it was promotable. I got out before I promoted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we definitely want to uh, jump into that because I'm sure as far as like the uh, army bean counters are concerned, that was probably a what the hell sort of moment. Um, but yes, yeah, so we'll get into that. But um, before then, just some quick context also for our listeners and those who have been listening. Um, yes, it's no coincidence that Adam's last name is the same as Dr. Michael Hunziker. And uh, that is uh, not coincidental. They are brothers. And so, um, you know, I've known Adam uh, through Mike for a long time. We've hung out, uh, you know, when we were both younger whippersnappers, glue sniffers. Um, but he has been in the Army or was in the Army, yeah, for 15 years. Uh, and Mike was nice enough to reach out and make those connections. So, yeah, this is. Adam Hunziker is Dr. Michael Hunziker's brother, and so this is another uh, really great linkage to the show. So as we um, are talking, uh, as we're entering into this conversation, if you could just give us 
I don't know, as brief or as long-winded a uh, background of, of, you know, how it was that you came into being in the Army and then, because you were just, you weren't at any of the academies. You weren't ROTC, right? You're just normal college student initially, correct? Yeah, no, I was a regular college student. You know, I, I went to college 2000, right? And, you know, the towers fell um, 2001. And so, uh, you know, I, I basically always wanted to serve. You guys were in the Marine Corps. I saw you guys being in the Marine Corps and serving, especially when you guys were deploying out in 2003. It was a big motivation for me. Mike came back. Uh, I was looking to get into medical school and I was looking at all the different options. And my brother was like, hey, I think he got me in touch with one of the uh, the docs for the Marine Corps, like one of the Navy guys that crosses over, takes care of the green suitors and, uh, yeah. was like, Hey, check out this. It's a, you know, free medical school. You know, you can go and do this as an opportunity. Um, and so I signed up for it and I actually in my, uh, cause I always want to be in the military. Turns out if you're going to medical school, you shouldn't highlight that you want to be in the military because they tend to be more left-leaning organizations. And so if you're like, Hey, I want to be in the military. That's what I want to do. It's not great, but it worked well for uses. And so they were all about it. So they, they, I went into UCIS, Uniform Services University. Uh, it's in Bethesda, Maryland. It's attached to Walter Reed National Military Medical Center. Um, and so I, I joined up, got the interview, told them I decided to do it. They ended up taking me. I went there four years uh, of medical school. You end up rotating. Your first two years are like educational, and your last two years are rotations, clinical rotations. I think they've changed that subsequently, but then you rotate through all the major medical treatment facilities. Uh, which is kind of cool because you get to see, you know, different forces, Air Force, uh, Navy, and civilian. Um, and then I did my residency for psychiatry. I did it in uh, Walter Reed National Military Medical Center. Um, and then I had some interesting opportunities to go to Africa while still a resident to do some experiences for PTSD there. And then we went out to, uh, I wanted to go to Johns Hopkins to do a bunch of uh, issues associated with neuropsychiatric sequelae associated with, uh, you know, traumatic brain injury. Uh, but the army had different ideas. They sent me to the 82nd, which has tons of uh, traumatic brain injury. Bed, right? <laughs> yes. Yes. The home of traumatic brain injury and airborne. And uh, so they sent me there. I went, I was a division psychiatrist for the 82nd for three years. Uh, I transitioned over to the hospital. I ran their inpatient, uh, the medical director for their inpatient psychiatric facility. Then I did, um, I ran some clinics. And then I went and deployed uh, with the 82nd to Iraq. And then I came back and then I did, um, I went, uh, I was part of the 44th Medical Brigade, which is like a medical sustainment brigade in the army. And I went and deployed with them to Afghanistan. And then I came back and I finished my last three, uh, two years with uh, the USASOC, which is Special Operations Command is the USASOC psychiatrist. Uh, and then I chose to get out and I actually work now at a hospital called First Health, which is a, a hospital uh, outside of Fort Bragg. So it takes care of a lot of the areas of, of a bit, uh, I guess it would be west of Fort Bragg. So that's what I'm doing now. I'm running the ERs, doing some of their ER consultation and their floor consultation for psychiatric issues. Okay. And then I think we talked a little bit on the phone uh, before the show, but while you're there, you still have a good percentage of your patients are still in, in uniform. Is that correct? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So the, the area, I would say the composition of the area is about 30% are like military retirees or active duty or active somehow associated with the military and have benefits under it. But, you know, some a lot of the veterans didn't retire out, so they don't have uh, TRICARE for life. They just have VA benefits, so they'll go to the VA, but we still have a good amount of uh, retirees in our systems. 
Um, and I'd say a, a third are just other kind of retirees because it's a big golfing community in Pinehurst. Uh, like the Women's National Open is is here now currently. So there's a lot of golfing, you know, aficionados that come out here to live. So we've got a third that are just out here to retire and then a third just from the local area. But it's a huge military population uh, just because obviously Fort Bragg is one of the biggest military installations, you know, in the world. Right. We've got a whole lot of soldiers, soldiers' families, and a lot of people choose to retire out here. Um, yeah, so I, I get to deal with a lot of stuff that I took care of, you know, when I was still in uniform, now that they're retired out. And so it, it, it's been rewarding, especially to be part of it. And about, I would say, a third of the, the physicians that work at the hospital are retired military. Um, so that's kind of nice, too. Okay, that's, uh, that's awesome. And then, so you mentioned that, like, you went in saying, like, hey, I want to be in the military. And you yeah. said that it was a little problematic. How, how so? I mean, so when I went after it, it was 2005, maybe 2006, you know, Fallujah was kicking off and that was uh, the military. I mean, I'm not sure if you remember that time, but there was after we went, to, everybody loved us after we went into Afghanistan uh, and then we went to Iraq and not everybody loved the military anymore. There's a bunch right. of questions. I think during that time, like even certain places in San Francisco refused to have recruiters in the colleges. So here I am applying at, I think at the time I was a resident of California, applying to California schools, you know, maybe not the best idea and sitting there saying, I want to be a military position. Uh, so it was, it was probably lack of experience from my standpoint of like the cultural part of it. Not everybody is pro-military, you know, as obviously my family, your family is. So right. it's just one of those things that, you know, that we really are. And that's something that I can't hit on enough is that we are a, a culture, a group of individuals that raise our own, you know, many, the vast majority of people that are in the military come from military families or have military, you know, people that brought them in. And so, you know, my brother obviously brought me in and it was just one of those things. So and we have cousins and aunts and uncles that are also, you know, lifelong military people. So it's a, yeah. So it was a bad idea to do that. And lots of medical schools period just tend to be, you know, not quite so pro-military. So it just, it was what it was, but uh, interesting. Yeah, that's really interesting. Well, I mean, yeah, I, I, that's awesome though that you found sort of that uh, that meeting point where obviously the uniform services uh, medical schools definitely look for people who want to be in the military. So yes, so they were they were they were like, this is a good thing for you here, and I'm like, well, that's good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. win win. Um, so then, uh, I mean, what was it about? Obviously, uh, you know, Mike was ROTC at uh, at Berkeley. Did any of that sort of transcend, or was it just something that you knew you wanted to do, but just later, like, hey, let me get through sort of this, uh, you know, initial what kids do, go to school, get my degree, and then I'll look into it after. Oh, I, I you know, Mike. The the thing about Mike is, you know, he. Uh, I love that kid, but nobody ever thought he was going to be military. Like he was the least <laughs> military kid growing up. I think he was the, he won all state for like debate and <laughs> just nobody ever thought it. And he went to Berkeley and the last thing anybody, I mean, Berkeley's, <laughs> Berkeley's uh, ROTC or Navy ROTC program is not, you know, robust considering the size of the college. So nobody saw that coming out of a blue moon. So he comes back and, you know, my brother was probably 135 pounds soaking wet when he left and kind of out of shape and just a different guy. And he comes back and now here's this Marine. He's doing push-ups and running around. He's all, you know, hurrah and 
it was it was it was an impressive change for my brother you know he's more feisty now and he was just a completely different person more self-confidence and i was like you know i, I want more of that so my, we come from a family that believes in service and so they were you know i saw that so i just had to figure out how it fit into my life because one of the things you know i truly believe too is the military takes as much as it gives so you got to align your priorities where you know you got to get something out of the military because if you just come in, come in just give sacrifice it'll take it all and say you know <laughs> yeah. somewhat thank you goodbye here's the door and so it's just but it fit it was i was looking to improve my life and uh they were i think at the time i was doing lab work you know i think i was earning like twenty eight thousand dollars, and they say hey we're gonna pay you even more and you're gonna get a medical degree out of it and i'm like where do i sign you know you pay me more i get free medical school and you know i'm gonna end up with a career on the other side so yeah it just it all, all the stars aligned and they said here's your spot and i took it uh, and it, at the time you know it's 2006 i couldn't imagine that the iraq war afghanistan war is going to be going on you know by the time my payback is done like i'm like oh yeah you know there's a war but it'll be over by the time we get there <laughs> dude that it's i mean Mike and I actually said those things. Actually, probably more me than Mike. Uh, you know, he's all obviously way better at reading the tea leaves. But I was like, dude, we got our car. You know, we're, uh, you know, this is going to be it. We're going to be the big dogs on the block, man. You know, this thing's yeah. over. We, we made it. We did it. And then I came back off of recruiting duty. And, you know, they were like Lance Corporals with like three rows high. You know, they're on their like third deployment. But at the same time, and I guess, you know, this is sort of a good lead in is, those kids came right out of, you know, boot camp and then entry level school. And then they didn't see CONUS for more than like three months at a time for, you know, almost two, you know, 18 months to two years increments. And so, I mean, we were just, you know, like you said, like, oh, four, oh, five, we were just, we were just cycling them through, just chewing them up and spitting them out. And so, I mean, there were just a ton of issues. And I mean, back then when you would transition out, you would sort of get, a sit down, you'd get like a PowerPoint presentation from a chaplain and then your commander would be like, Hey, is everybody good? And then you'd get on a plane and go home. You get like a 96 and then you'd start right back up into workups. Yeah, uh, and yeah. I mean, we weren't mental health. I mean, Christ, I think they might've even been calling it, still calling it shell shock back then. Yeah, um, yeah. So anyways, you know, as, so obviously it's extreme. We've, we've come a long way, I think, but you know, obviously a ton of ways to go, but I mean, before you even start getting into that, like, I guess let's define terms, right? Like what is PTSD? What is combat stress? What is TBI? If you could help just sort of, let's just start at the ground level and work our way up. Like what are the terms and what do they mean to, to our body? Like, let's start quickly with like a, just a, a quick how long is this total? Is it an hour long? Is that what we're going for? Dude, it, we'll go as long as you're willing to give us, man. So, I mean, yeah. even if we're going to cut it up into a couple episodes, well, I mean, this is very important. So, yeah, just let's talk about me. precision because a lot of people, you know, they approach psychiatry and, you know, psychiatry is one of those weird things where it goes from everything from your chaplain, right, to your psychiatrist, psychologist, social workers, people with Reiki Crystal. Like, there's so many people in this fray. Um, so it's important that we talk about what it is. Uh, and it's it, there's a spectrum of science, right? Where you start with like physics and then physics builds together and gets chemistry, chemistry builds together and gets biology and like several systems up there. You know, we've gone past biology, past biologic systems. We're kind of, we straddle something between social sciences. Um, and a lot of that is what we call empiric medicine. There are specialties 
And science is always one of the such and medicine is that we always find out new things. What we thought yesterday is different than what we, we know today. So we're kind of straddling the system where we do empiric, which is trial and error. We know that there are a constellation of symptoms that travel together. We've known this for a long time. If you can think about a correlate, it's kind of like you know HIV before we knew what it was. It was this constellation of symptoms that we knew you know traveled together and we knew it was something. So we call it a syndrome, right? Because we didn't know what it is. Depression is so common. We don't know what causes it. It's just, we don't know. So our options are to wait and do nothing, like to let that suffering continue or to try to you know, treat trial and error wise and empiric treatment until we know. Schizophrenia, we don't know what causes it. Bipolar, we don't know what causes it. We have a lot of data that says we think we know what certain things are. We have lab data and genetic data, but there's nothing that has the same vein of like cardiology where it's pretty straightforward. We know what the pathology is or what causes it. Uh, and again, we have to create artificial systems because if you're a cardiologist, right? Let's say you have congestive heart failure. Or if you're an endocrinologist taking care of diabetes, you go, oh, this is what I take care of. I take care of diabetes. You're like, okay, well, why does he have diabetes? Well, that doesn't matter. I take care of the diabetes. You know what I mean? Like right, he has right. an eating problem. Why does he eat that? And so all medicine specialties, medicine period, it's too complex and too many variables to take the whole person, right? We can't just say uh, everything that he brings into the thing, his family, his bad social situation, we try to, but it's so complex that normally we cut out a system and go, this is the system we're going to do, right? And so we say comorbidity and all that. Yes. You know, oh, he is depressed and diabetes, but it is specialty that's more obtuse. And a lot, a lot of that is the way we were founded. We're one of the first specialties, actually. But the way we kind of grew, we grew out of neurology as well. Um, and so, you know, there's a lot of issues associated with ethics, associated with morality, always in the in the ends of medicine. Uh, when you don't know what it is, it always breaks down to what we call moral failings, right? Or bad spirits or all those things. And so for the longest time, you know, seizures were thought to be bad humors and, you know, ill spirits and we thought they were faking it. Um, and so what we, we saw is like the birthplace, there's a guy named Charcot came out from neurology and from neurology came Freud and Freud had the right idea. All medicine breaks down to, you know, physiology, pathophysiology. So the way your body should work pathophysiology, the way it breaks, and then a disease state, right? And so we under, we don't understand what the, really what our system is. I can't tell you what the emotional system is, which is psychiatry, right? Your emotional regulation system. I can tell you it's important that emotional regulation system is what gives us motivation, makes, makes us work with one another, right? Because the people that want to work with one another move society forward. The ones that don't, we call antisocial or schizophrenic, right? Because they act oddly. They don't want to be around other people. How weird is that? So for humans, that's normal. But for bears, that would be absolutely normal, right? Bears <laughs> don't want to hang out and build a society together, but we are more of a monkey species. We want to work together. And so that system that bonds us together, that we feel other people's pain, all of that, you know, that's a system that can break down. And what we really get into in psychiatry is we've kind of hodgepodge this creation where we're kind of pulling it forward. We don't understand really what we're doing. There's so many of our diagnoses that are overlapping. So many systems, like what's the difference between sympathetic arousal, right? Anxiety and trauma. It's just, it's, it's the same thing. It's an activation of your sympathetic arousal system. And the question is what happens over time. And so, you know, somebody says, oh, it's an anxiety disorder. Someone says it's neurosis. Someone says it's PTSD. Veterans say it's post-traumatic stress. And it's a, it's a similar system. You have one system that's experiencing it. 
but the question your chaplain may say it's a moral injury and so it's just all these different things and you as a soldier walk up and you're like blam blam try this med try that and you'll get a lot of guys that try to approach situations formulaic where they'll just try to do the one size fits all and toss a bunch of stuff at you like this is what people with ptsd need and it's just empiric treatment is trial and error by definition and if i could say anything it's like dialing in a rifle right? You hit it, you see where you hit, and then you make small incremental changes until you're at target. Because if you try all one thing, then stop that and try all other things and stop that and whatever, you never know what you're treating. You have to do small increments and move that in and then have like, not, not to get too far ahead of it, but you know, that ambiguity is the problem. And we're all struggling with that problem. And we're trying to help individuals without knowing the illness, exactly what it is, you know, without perfectly understanding, like it's what we're all gonna call it. Um, and this is not new to psychiatry. Uh, we've had all sorts of troubles. If you ever heard of the DSM, you can do a whole, we can do a whole talk just talking about the DSM. Us agreeing on the names of diagnosis has been a huge issue or even defining what is an illness. Right. The DSM three, they still called homosexuality an illness. And is that an illness? Is it a societal construct? I, I, it's it's that nexus between what's disease, you know, what's behavior and what's behavioral health, right? Are they the same thing? Are they different? Is an antisocial really a psychiatric illness? Like yeah. what are these things? Because I tell you, schizophrenia and bipolar, they're they're ill, right? They have an illness, but like antisocial, fraudism, things like that. Like, is that an illness? I don't know. So that's some of the struggle people and they get caught up in it. And people will be like, see that diagnosis changed, so it's all, all wrong. Uh, we've never been so popular as we are now. That's also a new thing. You know, when I even when I joined, like I said, hey, I'm gonna do this behavioral health thing. Um, you know, like I it was still you you said behavioral health, you raise the flag, you're out. And I remember Mike telling me, you know, with all those Marines uh, that came back after your guys' first deployment. And they were acting out. They were good soldiers before and they were coming back and acting out. And they called them all, you know, they were like, these guys are dirtbags now and we got to drum them out. And he has immense regret about that because, you know, we knew so little about it. Yeah. And it had been a good amount of years and before we had shell shock. And so we were like, how could these guys be shell shocked? You know, they didn't get blown up. And so it's difficult to, when we talk about PTSD, so of those diagnoses, there's something with post-traumatic stress disorder is what we call it right it was mainly derived from a lot of one-time incidents that's really what it looks at uh, motor vehicle accidents sexual assaults physical assaults uh, and it itself has changed where it started out being like you had to be the one who was assaulted or watch someone be assaulted and then it became now more modern just watching the assault feeling someone you know and love that could have been you know under trauma witnessing it or secondary trauma like us experiencing other people's but really it's just it's it's three parts some sort of major trauma right something where it's just bad whatever you had to, and it's that activation of your sympathetic arousal system right so severe that's seared into your mind so some part of it's not pathologic you're supposed to remember forever if you're attacked by a tiger right 1.5 million years ago we derived this system to work with each other and some part of that's also when you're attacked by a tiger you have to know hey walking through this part of the forest this is where you get attacked to tigers keep your head on a swivel Right? right. That's a normal function of the system. If the trauma is so bad, that's where your dad got eaten by the tiger. It's going to have more gravity to it, you know, more magnitude to it. And so that sympathetic arousal system may generalize because that's part of how our brains work is our brains work through associations. This is like that. 
you know, you breaking my heart is like, you know, painful. Painful was like me touching my hand on that fire. My first time I ever touched, you know, fire and learned that it burned. And so that's how your brains work. Like this jungle is like that jungle. You know, I got to watch out. I got to keep my head, but it generalizes to, you know, outside is like a jungle. I don't even want to go outside anymore. And then it goes like, I'm not safe anywhere outside those doors. And then just extrapolates from there. But that sympathetic arousal is a key uh, part of um, that post-traumatic stress. And then a second part of it is depression because that causes energy. Like you can't be with your head on a swivel for that long. There's an intensity to it, an irritability to it, and irritability defined as an organism's response to environmental stimuli, right? So when people are like, oh, it's all irritable, it's like, it's really just your response. The guys who are very irritable are the guys that respond quick to those kinds of things. That's how you're supposed to respond to dangerous situations or situations where you feel, you know, uncomfortable, you shut down or you attack. So that irritability over time takes lots of energy. I mean, because you don't sleep, maybe you get the guys who get in that combat sleep when they come back home every 90 minutes, wake up every 90 minutes, wake up every 90 minutes, wake up. Um, and then they don't sleep. So they're more tired. They're always on edge and they start getting depressed because it takes energy to do that. You see that in most cycles of any kind of depression, anxiety are very intertwined. You know, you, you kind of just so stressed and so anxious for so long. And then you don't sleep because you have poor sleep because you're always kind of on edge. And then you're more depressed and more anxious. Then it just turns into this nasty cycle of bad sleep being always on edge and being depressed. And then there's this overlay that I think a lot of people don't really fully comprehend of, of moral injury, you know, violation of that is which is right. You know what I mean? Like the tribal violation, like how could humanity do this sort of thing? I mean, you see your fair share of dead children, dead soldiers, dead women, the terrible things that happen to people in war zones. Um, and it violates you. And this is seeing lots of post-traumatic stress, but there, there's a layer of to that that you have to attend to, uh, like processing that. Because if you don't process it, it's just, it's it, it will hang with you. You watch, you know, you, you're raised to think that things are a certain way, right? We live in the greatest country in the world. We see all those kinds of things like, hey, this is what happens. You take care of people and that stuff. And you go to a war zone where people don't take care of each other. People turn each other over to be attacked by the other enemy, right? Like, you know, different, you know, tribes turning each other over to try to get, you know, hit by missiles or attacks and stuff like that, just to turn each other over to get their land or do other terrible things to each other, or kill children or strap bombs to them, send them after people. And it's just a whole array of just violations on top of being depressed on top of it. And on top of coming home and being completely incongruent, right? I'm, I'm sure anybody who's been there, you know, you're just say, Hey, look at my combat ribbon. Nobody cares about your combat ribbon outside the Marine Corps, right? right. You know, they're like, What's that? You know, like they they don't even recognize it. They don't see it. They don't get your dark humor. They don't understand what you've seen. I, I think like even because I work here and I have a civilian PA that works with me, and you know I run into these soldiers from time to time. They're like SF guys and stuff like that, and they'll talk about running and gunning just casually, you know, because we'll break into like a, a veterans chat. And then you know she was like, "Wow, he was really blasé about ro rolling around, you know, nup armored tata, like just you know hammering the the <laughs> the forty. And you're like, "Yeah," because it. That was his experience for 10 months or 15 months yeah. or 18 months. You know, that was what he did every day. Like that seared into his memory. Like that's, you know, some part exciting, some part traumatic, some part everything. But when you trigger that piece, but normally he comes and tells a girl like that who sees all these veterans and stuff, but they don't really open up and you, you open up to them and they're like, wow, that's dark, you know, or that's weird. Or, and then they shut down because you don't want to share that stuff. Right. Right. Or, so like, go ahead. Oh, I was just saying. So it seems like, at least from like, I guess the common understanding of things, what you're talking about 
is so much more nuanced than just, oh, I have flashbacks or when I hear a loud noise, I spark and then I'm doing low crawls across my living room or I'm waking up in the middle of the night, you know, choking whoever it is next to me. Um, And I I guess it's, it's probably a fairly common thing within our society where we only sort of respond to the extremes, which really leaves out like, you know, 90 sounds like to me, like 95% of the people who are suffering through this thing, whereas then they feel like, and you can please correct me if I'm wrong, but then they feel like, well, I don't really have something that, that adds up to that. So I'm not even going to say anything because I'm not nearly as bad as what everybody else thinks about, you know, post-traumatic stress. Yes. And I, I would say, uh, you know, just being in this game so much, we need to stop thinking about it as being a nice quaint disease uh you know i mean like i have congestive heart failure right okay great so if you have you know a 35 the congestive heart failure is measured by your ejection fraction right like if your ejection fraction what a normal is 37 percent, you're considered to be heart failure okay what's 56 percent? it's not great right you're yeah. not congestive heart failure yet but it's not great we need to start considering these things to be more of um uh what's the best way to say it like an overuse injury time, distance, and intensity. The human mind and the human brain can only be exposed to so many of these things. We've seen this before in our, we've done terrible experiments on animals, psychiatry has, and research scientists. I was also a neuroscience undergraduate in in Lehigh. And so what it really shows you is that if you show animals too much exposure of this, you know, of traumatic events, or you mess with them too much, we used to do it by shocking them intermittently with no random guys, there's no, it wasn't, you know, controlled to anything. It wasn't like they did something and they were shocked. They were just randomly shocked that they shut down. They wouldn't even protect themselves. You'd put them in water and they wouldn't even protect themselves. So they float to the ground because they're just defeated. There's some part of the system that just finally says, you know, tap out, it's less suffering or so. I, I can't tell you what it is, but it's been shown over and over again. But these exposures, right? It, it basically leads to this overuse injury. And so just like your spine or your back, right? You can only jump out of so many planes and hit the ground so many times. There is a bell curve of people that will survive every jump. They'll be on the 100, you know, in 68th or the, you know, black or the gold golden dagger team that will be jumping in the 11,000s. I met some guys who got 11,000 jumps. Um, and they're going to be fine. But, and you see that anyway, you see Marines that are like, they'll run and run and run and be fine. And then you got people that fall out because they have knee problems, back problems. And it's just, there's going to be people that aren't, you know, able to handle that much stress. You handle, I, I don't care. I've taken care of people at the, the pointy edge of the spear. A lot of them still have it, but they're just strong enough to have those calluses, if that makes sense. Like it's, they deal with it in a good way or a a socially acceptable way, but they're not good. Yeah. Yeah. They're not good. They're just, they're, they're burnt and they know how to take it and they know how to suck it up. And they have that, that composure, that constellation of, you know, humanity that allows them to deal with it, but they're not good. And so that's why we get into this thing where it's like, I have the PTSD and you're like, okay, like, I, I don't even bother with the diagnosis anymore. It's just kind of like the do you have that sympathetic arousal piece that is just, it's uncontrollable? And do you have the more depression experience? Because everybody presents differently when they see something. Just think about like, you're driving down the road and you see something terrible, like a terrible car accident, like just terrible. And you see bodies mangled on the ground. It sticks with you. Have you ever done it? I've had to have some first responder situations out on highways and stuff like that. It just sticks with you for a period of time. Your memory system doesn't let it go because it sears in your brain. Your brain's telling you, hold on to this. Now, if you had that all day, every day, You know, like I've worked with a lot of EMT providers, a lot of police officers who are the first responders. That's why it's not a soldier centric issue. Right, right. 
there's a groups of people that are just exposed to immense amount of turmoil and pain. Like you show me physicians, I mean, I'll show you people with higher suicide rates and depression and, and all sorts of stuff. Uh, veterinarians have the highest suicide rate, likely because a lot of their issues are, you know, they see suffering of animals and stuff like that. And they're not even allowed to take care of them all the time. Cause a lot of people are like, well, that's too expensive. You know, and so yeah, just yeah. Seeing suffering is not a healthy, healthy thing. And so that's why like society, right. Says, do you have the PTSD? And of course, you know, VA and all that stuff rewards you for those issues. Um, and I, I think the, you know, I, I've had my fair share of, you know, of, of getting exposed to scary stuff. Right. And I think about my own experience. I think that's made me a better provider because it helps you understand some of that, that, that sympathetic issues, you know, being yeah. in danger of thinking you're going to die of not knowing what the situation is going to be. And it's just, it's, it's, it's difficult to deal, but the last thing you can, you can't really do. And there's constellation of comorbid symptoms with our population, like sexual assaults are different. Um, you know, like the, the long-term veteran is different. The first time out soldier, you know, the 82nd guy was rip roaring, ready to get out there, went out there and failed at the mission. Somebody died. Something like that is different. And so it's just, you can't do a cookie cutter. You can't just go, here's some antidepressants. Here's some sleeping agents. Here's a little bit of therapy. Um, Cause especially like some people, they're just not ready to there's the main stays of therapy is a uh, prolonged exposure uh, where you like basically go over the trauma over and over again. You write it down so many times that you just, and you're numb to it. You know what I mean? You're just exposing yeah. yourself to it over and over again, like an EMDR, which is basically a similar thing, but you know, you, you have these lights that, you know, like move your eyes. And so it's the same kind of thing It's exposure based and cognitive procedural therapy, which is very similar. It's just exposing yourself over and over and over again to these traumas until they don't have the same magnitude. And so it's just, it's fascinating, but it's one of those things also where like, when you think about the brain, it's not one system, you know, it's not one system that just functions in and of itself. It's a system of systems, if that makes sense. It's the same way yeah. you can go and get ready for, for work with probably not thinking too much about it, uh, but you can still walk down that hallway. You're still breathing autonomously, right? Devoid of any conscious input whatsoever. I'd say the vast majority of your day is spent on what we call, you know, like uh, just quick thinking instead of like deep thought, it's quick thinking. It's just the, you know, do this, do this. What happens to this stimuli? You do this, right? And you're not thinking about that. You're saying, hey, my coffee's ready. I hear that ding. I go get my coffee, right? You're not yeah. like deep thinking about what does the ding mean? You know, like you're getting your coffee, <laughs> you're drinking your coffee, you're getting ready and you're going. You may not remember the majority of your, of your mornings because it's done in that thought. But like that's also with your threat analysis system, right? Parts of your amygdala and your hippocampus are literally automatic. It's how you see a snake and you're already reacting even before you think. Because if you were a creature 1.5 million years ago who had to deep think about whether a snake was after you or a tiger was hunting you, you would be the species that did not procreate and continue on. Right. So you have to be that, that fast thinking where, you know, maybe you're like, oh, that's what happened. Or that was a rope, not a snake. But if you're already pinged up and you're ready to go, that's a rough place to spend your life in that constant, like there's a tiger around every corner. That's where we get into and all yeah. the sequelae that comes from that. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, I mean, it's the same reason why like my five-year-old doesn't continue to grab the hot pot. He does it yeah. once and then he just stays away from the stove now. <laughs> yeah. Except the problem is that it's generalized far past hot pots. Right, right. Now he thinks every door is hot and every, you know, everything intermittently could be hot. And so just that intermittent reward. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. And, and then so when we start talking about the this, this spectrum and the system of systems, 
in the constellation of systems. When we start talking, when you're adding in the physiological effects of combat, so like traumatic brain injury, yeah. on top of all these other things you're already talking about, what what is happening there? I mean, it seems to me like it. we're looking at like a system that even when it's working at 100% efficiency is having a hard time dealing with this. Now you add in traumatic brain injury and now you've got a reduced capacity with increased input. Is my, am I explaining that correctly or? Yeah, I think so. You're, you're talking about the comorbidity. I, I find that, you know, I like the way you said it, the, the nuanced approach to different patient populations, right? We call that cultural capacity, uh, cultural intelligence, cultural capacity. The United States military is one of the most unique uh, group of individuals on the face of the planet. You know what I mean? It's just the, you know, you got the guys that take care of each other, right? The sustainers, or you got the air force, you know, the different parts of the air force that all are different light of pilots, not the same guy that, you know, is the mechanic that makes the, the plane move that our air, our air force mechanics aren't like our army mechanics at all. They're completely different human beings and different like people that deal with things differently. You know, your, your pipe swingers, the guys that are like at the forefront doing all the, the nasty missions, right? They're completely different than your 11 Bravo that's just off the streets, 18 year old, just trying to get his first, you know, cuts at things. It's just all different, man. And so, yes, those different comorbidities, though, especially I remember one of the first experiences I had was comparing. We had a combat aviation brigade and they tend to be senior, you know, E7s, E8s, E9s been in a long time. Right. Like they were since the kickoff, they were from before the, the, the war even kicked off. And then you got a bunch of guys in the, the combat brigades, right, that are younger dudes. They were guys that were 18 to 24, you know, probably on their first enlistment, maybe their second, you know, like by the time they're senior, third or fourth. But, you know, it's just that they hadn't had as much experience in combat and they had very different presentations, right, because different people break at different times. So sometimes, you know, it was just a very different presentation versus like the chronic illness, right? So you've been in a helicopter gyrating for the better part of 20 years, you're going to have comorbid issues with brain injury you're gonna have comorbid issues with musculoskeletal injuries when you're 18 i mean you could take all the hits you want to and you're still rucking along but it's just that long multiple issues that they're all dealing with and that so my last go around was at usasak and those patients were you know they'd been in the, in the fight for a long time high kinetic high high deployment rate like you were describing but they hadn't slowed down for them you know they're still on every six month deployments every single year um, so they're just worn out after 20 years you know, another concept I would also include is the beginning of the war, it was exciting. So all your senior NCOs are like, it's finally, you know, it's, this is my war, I'm ready to go. But by the time, like you guys grew up, you know, I mean, like you guys were the, the, the first fray. And so some of you guys stayed, right? That was, you were the 20 years of the war, the whole war. And so we ended up with traumatized people leading traumatized, you know, young people that were getting tra traumatized for the first time. And a lot of it's, you know, it's, it's like that gallows humor. It's like, welcome to it. You know, the guys are crying and upset. They're like, this is the game, you know? Yeah, yeah. Suck it up, suck it up keep going. And it's just, you know, they talk about the, the cycle of trauma in families. It's no different. You know, this tribe that we're all part of, it, it's just, a, it's the same thing. You got your parents telling you and they're all traumatized. You know, they're going to treat you the same way and you're going to get traumatized too. But the big things, chronic pain, huge. It's a huge thing in the military period. You know, we do not do super intelligent things with our bodies. Um, <laughs> it's just, they're trying to get better, I guess, but you know, it's still the same thing. We need young people to do hard things. Um, and we, we hurt bodies like it's going out of style, jumping out of airplanes, you know, like rucking. I think our PT schedule in 82nd was run on Mondays, ruck on Thursdays, 
and run on Fridays. Like that was like the, the and in between you did something silly, like played football to get more injuries. And so, um, but that's the bravado. That's where the team's at. It's just, people are, people are pushing it and it, it's what's needed, but it's hard on your bodies. And you do that for 20 years, you're going to feel it, man. I have never met one senior NCO that didn't have bad knees and bad back. And so it's just a, the nature of it. They may, they may smile and say that they put the pain there, but they, they still were hurting. So that, right. That already takes out bandwidth. We only have so much bandwidth, like mental, emotional, spiritual bandwidth. And you could probably tell me how far you can run right now, but you can't tell me how much stress you can, you can handle. And as you get older, I remember, you know, before I went to medical school, I was like, I could study forever. And then I realized what really studying was. And I, I, I burn out, man. I remember taking some tests just being like, I felt like someone punched me in the head. Like we'd had these two day long tests and I would just be like, I felt like I was drunk by the end of the second day. I was just like, I can't think anymore. I can't right. do it. Right. There's a, a finite bandwidth and we give no credence to it. So we're like, Hey, I can go see, you know, six deployments worth of, you know, IEDs, friends dying and dead, you know, civilians. You, you can't, you just can't. And we just, we haven't articulated that bandwidth because we don't know what it is. And so it's just, but it's a problem. So, so would the term, and I know this was thrown around a lot, like when I was going through, and I don't even know if it's a thing anymore, but so is combat stress then a thing, or is it just a more colloquial term for these things that you're talking about? Sure. I think these are synonyms as we try okay. to, you, you ever see the, there's a, like a joke that talks about mental health and it's like, well, I think it just talks about complex, ambiguous situations. It's like a blind man, a deaf man and something like that. And they're trying to feel out what they're feeling it's an elephant and someone's like oh it's wide like a tree trunk you've heard this yeah. before you know like yeah, yeah yeah oh this is a vine snake yeah these are all the same things we know combat sucks right the military sucks it's called the suck it's suffering it's service right so it's like we put people in these tough things and bad things happen to them full stop i mean that's just like as we try to define it further from there is where you know the the diagnostic mis misadventure goes. And so we try to get perfect where we're like, oh, well, you know, Vic, you're just not resilient enough. And, you know, Adam, you're resilient enough. And, you know, like, we're trying to like, let's find out what makes people resilient. It's just, it's kind of test by the show. Like you get exposed to these bad exposures. Like nobody's ever gonna, you know, convince me that going to combat is a good experience. Nobody, <laughs> right? right? So it's like nuclear radiation. You can handle a little bit of it, right? And it's still sucks. And then you can handle a lot of it and it still sucks. And the more you handle, the more bad things happen to you. And the less you handle, the better it is for you. And our civilian compatriots who don't expose to anything other than the news, right? Or a bad Twitter, you know, statement or something like that are better off for it. And it's just, you're going to start the exposure. It's going to get worse. But then there's also other factors that I think are, are fascinating, but it's, you know, like the culture of sacrifice. You've probably heard of this before. It's like when you tell a war story and someone tells you to shut up, that's nothing like, oh, yeah, wow, you almost got blown up, you know, and I always joke about it when I talk to some of these guys, especially like sustainers who only got indirect fire or something like that, right? I'm like, man, could you imagine what would happen if people at Walmart suddenly took mortars, like one of five rain down from the skies and just randomly blowing up cars and people like, it'd be like, they'd be pretty scared. There'd be a lot of traumatized dudes. This is not a normal experience. But you know, you got your, your, your you know, badass E9 walking down, like he's, you know, the stuff's coming and he's like, if it hits me, it's my time. You're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just making you feel like a complete wuss, right? And so you're sitting there and you're like, man, like th that's what we're exposed to. It's like the culture of sacrifice. Like, oh, you deployed twice. Okay. 10 monther. Yeah. You should have seen those 15 monthers. <laughs> like, 
Yeah. Okay. That the year got extended. How about that? Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, you got your combat action ribbon. Oh, okay. I got purple heart. You're like. Yeah, yeah. We do that one upsmanship all the time, don't we? Oh. Yeah. Without it, without okay. a doubt. Is that sort of? A, I mean, is that a response to the post-traumatic stress? Is to sort of validate, like, hey, like kind of like I said, like this sucks. I can then validate it by sort of being able to throw my card out the t- on the table every time someone has a thing that they say. Yeah, it just it was a unique. I think my first exposure to it, you know, was uh, in Iraq, and I wanted my E seven, the platoon guy that was, you know, leading us and make keeping me, you know, fed and you know, clothes and all that was counting his stripes, and he's just like, "Oh man, I get one more stripe, and then I'll get this if I stay three more months. You know, I'm gonna miss a birthday, but I'll get another stripe." And it's just kind of like the I think we're a bunch of type A dudes, right? And females, dudes, females, a bunch of type A people. You don't join the military to be passive. Um, and everybody's just competing. And it's just, that's what it is. And especially, you know, I, I truly only knew the military medical system through my training. I went to Walter Reed and then I came and went to Fort Bragg. And Fort Bragg is a, it is an aggressive place. It's a lot of people trying to, you know, be in charge and doing stuff. And it's just a bunch of aggressive people. And I think that that mentality coupled with you know the tribe the tribe values sacrifice and it needs sacrifice right like yeah. this is not a job where you work from nine to five then you phone and you're like oh you want me to work overtime <laughs> yeah yeah right that's not gonna happen and so it's just i think it's just the culture it's what it is and so i don't think it's necessarily bad it's what's needed i was often you know i think about the military especially the army as this juggernaut right it's complete chaos just rolling down the road and there's these absolute heroes just giving their absolute everything to keep the tracks on as it's just rolling. And if, if you fall under it, it will roll right over you. Yeah. Yeah. Hammer you over. It does not care. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's just, you got guys that'll try to pull you back onto the juggernaut so you don't get crushed by it. But man, it's just moving and it has to, I mean, I always early in my career, I'd be frustrated because I'm like, why can't I work for Google? And I'd read all these like books, like good to great and how Google works. And I'd be like, we could do this in the military. And then I realized like, can you imagine first contact if the VP of Google took around and like was blew up? Like how would Google work? Yeah. It'd fall apart. Like our, I remember our airborne, we were, we were predicting like, oh man, 35% casualties in an airborne operation. And we'd be like, okay, moving on. You're like yeah, yeah. 35% of a 20,000 man force, like 7,000 dudes just gone. You're like, yep, that's what an airborne insertion would look like. And you're just like, it's so different. It's just, it, it, you can't even say it's similar, but. Yes. So living in that kind of culture, I think that's just, that's part of the military, but we have to, I believe, my belief is that we got have to have more appreciation for just how emotionally toxic it is. And I don't think you can make it less toxic. I think that's what it has to be. Um, Cause I, I don't see us warfare getting any kinder anytime soon. And so right. it's just one of those things where it has to be that kind of mentality, but acknowledging, you know, like how radiologists walk, walk around with little badges that show how much radiation they got or radiation radiation technicians have that that's how we should approach it or it's like oh you've had two deployments you need to go see chaplain somebody like you can choose your menagerie of people that are going to help out but it has to be one of these resources uh so we can keep tabs on you because it's just it's if you're exposed to too much radiation you're going to get cancer yeah yeah or you'll have radiation sickness like it's going to happen well, let's talk about that, and I guess let's you know let's dive even deeper. We were talking on the phone. You'd mentioned some things I thought were absolutely fascinating, and the effects of uh, the effects on the body from energy. 
Yeah. Something as simple as just firing a rifle, it does stuff to you. Can you talk yeah. a little bit about that? I know that's probably its own show, but you know, could you just sort of, I guess, unpack that for us a little bit and, and things that we don't even consider. You mentioned like flying a helicopter. I know for uh, fellow AM trackers, you know, you got the harmonics of the thing. I mean, just sitting in it, running idle, is sending energy through your body and you can obviously you can feel it. Um, and so, oh, yeah. so yeah, you'd mentioned that corollary. Like if you can feel it, something's happening. Yeah, I mean, let, let's start here. OSHA does not cover any soldiers. I mean, that I, it took me 15 years to find that out. Like I was a physician in the United States military and finally, you know, I'm at the command level and they're sitting there and like, yeah, there's no OSHA for soldiers. And so like, even in garrison back home, like we have preventative medicine guys that are out there and doing that, but that, that says something. So like, if you go and work for, you know, 3M or something like that, and you're out there on the floor around machinery, there's gonna be some guy with, an, you know, measuring how many, you know, the sound that you're exposed to on both an impact level and a continuous level. And that's just some of the energies we talk about. So jumping out of airplanes, sitting there in combat, shoot houses, you know, like breaching, you name it. Like these people are exposed to immense amount. Think about sitting in a giant metal box with an engine. Would you guys have like two V12s or something and running those things? <laughs> yeah, man, I think it's, it's insane. It's a, oh, yeah. And so you're basically putting your head in that, right? And so they're like, oh, we got here for hearing pro. I'm like, well, most of the time, does the hearing pro actually like, has anybody ever rated your exposure to that sound before? Answer probably no. Like, has you have a preventative medicine officer sit there, you know, with the, when the meters like measuring for over a period of time, like, hey, that exceeds the level of, you know, intensity and what, no. You're sitting inside an engine compartment as the thing is just revving continuously or the chemicals yeah. that you're exposed to. I think one of that thing, what made me more interested is we started, I inherited a lot of these tasks where they were looking into traumatic brain injuries or stuff they called like operator syndrome which is fascinating, just but basically what it breaks down to is chronic exposures, chronic environmental exposures. And this is OSHA 101, right? So like if you work around chemicals, how much are you inhaling, right? You're always inhaling something. So you're sitting in the back of an Amtrak in the water, right? And how much of those fumes are going straight into your lungs, right? I know it's a lot because you're probably all feeling sick when you're in there. So <laughs> that kind of thing. What is the hearing stuff that you're exposed to, right? So like we were finding that there could be a, most of the weapon systems that we measure today did not have anything to do with, you know, how much can your brain be exposed to? Because there's no good measurement. So they would measure hearing and like your lungs, like how many times before your lungs would start bleeding or that your hearing would start going irreparably, you know, damaged. And again, mm -hmm. tonal hearing. So you're hearing like the actual bone in your ear that vibrates versus the neurons that connect that hearing, that vibrating bone to your auditory complex, your brain. Those are different things. So I'm trying to think like what a big exposure, like what a difference that'd be. That'd be like looking at, uh, let's say I turn on a light, right? And saying this light switch is perfect. The light switch works perfectly fine. Not looking at the entire wiring that goes all the way to the light. So the light doesn't turn on, but you're like, it's fine because the light switches, it goes up and down. It works perfectly. We're like, no, but the wiring is completely gone. And that's, you know, what your brain does. Your, it rings and then it goes into your brain. Your brain has to decipher what that is as it's, you know, analyzing all these other inputs that are, you know, coming in 11 million bits of data, you know, every minute that's hitting your brain. And so you're sitting there and have to decipher, well, is that something I should pay attention to? Is that part of this sound? Is it a different sound? Right. Um, and so it's just super complex. So some of the things we found, you know, exposures to 50 caliber, sustained 50 caliber fire, sniper rifles. Um, I, I mean, you ever shot a 223 without having hearing pro on? Oh yeah. <laughs> that is a thing, man. And so like, yeah, there's a lot of concussive force associated with that. 
And I got a question. Did you feel poorly? Yeah, I wasn't too stoked about it. Yeah. What? What did you say? And the other things that we find, especially with traumatic brain injury, is what we call alterations of consciousness. It's not just loss of consciousness. In the high points of the war, uh, maybe it was, you know, people were digging into it more, but I, I had not heard about it. The signature injury was coup contra coup, which is a blatant injury, right? That's like you hit your head and then you, you hit it back and the thing, like if someone slams you the, or the truck blows up and gets thrown. And so like these sheer blast wave energy, in, like injuries, unless it fractured your skull, we're kind of like suck it up, you know, you're good. Um, and so you even think about the war before that, you know, we didn't even talk about traumatic brain injury unless you couldn't, you had serious cognitive issues or skull penetrating like injury or skull fracture. We didn't even talk about brain injury at yeah. all. And so like, and that's a very constant war injury since World War One, you know, since the artillery yeah. days. The first time I had, had heard about a guy, so the the convoy that's actually coming to pick me up to take me out to Marja in 2011 got hit with an IED, and we had to actually wait around because for the first time I'd ever seen it, one of the guys in there didn't pass his mace, the uh, the mace test, yeah. and so he had to stick around until he passed it, and so we were, you know, the convoy that was coming to pick me up ended up staying at um, at uh, what was it um, at Dwyer you know, for like three, four days until this guy could pass his mace test. But that was like 2011. How many guys had been blown up between, you know, essentially 2001, you know, for a decade had been blown up. And like this is, and I'm sure they had been doing it before, but for me, this is the first time I had seen them actually give someone the mace test and then apply the test results to their mental health and, and oh, yeah. their, their their brain. But anyhow, that, that just goes to say like, he was fine. Like physiologically, his arms and legs moved the way they were. So he had ten fingers, ten toes. But there was just something going on with his brain. It just wasn't working because of the. Shot let base. me let me say, not physiologically fine. I mean, okay, that's I guess that's what we gotta get our hands anatomically around. fine then, or this is a big part. Like you know, I, I've devoted fifteen years of my life, you know, to the specialty of things we don't understand. Things I do understand is that. Your brain is made up of neurons, delicate little cells that are all interconnected in some fine little way that play out very, you know, sensitively. And so to demonstrate, you know, all your feelings, your emotions, your dreams, all that stuff, if I stuck a screwdriver in your head, it'd be done, yeah. gone, right? right? So if I hit your brain with sheer energy force, like a sound wave, right, from a concussive explosion, from a 50 cal, from you name it, like breaching anything, with that right. intensity... It goes through your whole body the same way, right? And so most of your cellular, I would argue, like, you know, in your peripheral nervous system is less uh, nuanced and delicate, right? That's why we have a skull case. It's meant to protect that super delicate thing. Otherwise, we'd have a jellyfish head, right? If it wasn't right. you know, as robust, but we don't. So the nerves go out and they are more robust. They are stronger cells and less delicate um, and more simple, right? They axons and you know neural like you can look at more rudimentary ones like uh, from squids and stuff like that they're actually like pencil thickness but like pencil lead thickness but it's like things that you know we have very delicate thing and as the force comes through you hollow based and liquid based organ systems get hit harder and there's a differential with that it's the same premise behind a two two three coming through with that shear force temporary displacement moving the cells around you can actually have shearing forces and tearing things yeah. we just can't see it that's the thing. And so some, again, this is under the auspices that like some exposure is okay-ish. None of it's good. 
you'd rather not be exposed to it at all. But over time, more and more injuries. All right, that guy got blown up once. Okay, now he's more susceptible because there could be micro little trauma that we can't see on an MRI. MRI only shows structure. That's an important thing. So we take an MRI. Let's say it doesn't, uh, MRIs can have greater, uh, they can look at more granular things with more coils. A lot of the ones we were looking at, especially in the earlier parts of the world, didn't have a lot of coils. So they were very, you know, vague pictures of the brain. And it just shows structure. It doesn't show function. That's important. That's like taking a picture of your body and going, well, all your bones are intact. And then you start moving and you're like walking all hunched over and whatever. Right. Like structure was fine. Function does not look good. <laughs> like yeah, you're not yeah. moving it well. Your brain, MRI shows you a big old picture of your brain. Great. Well, how does it function? We don't have a lot of great tests for that. We have some fMRIs and stuff like that, which are like use glucose to show where brains are, but it's kind of like a Rorschach. It's like that area of your brain is glowing, right? But right. so these injuries can injure you on a cellular level. And so we've moved as a, as a medicine. Think about this. This has been going on for thousands of years. You ever seen those pictures of like uh, where it shows the injured of war and stuff and they have like an arrow through their head and like the guy's in a sling and, you know, a stab wound and all these different things like traumatic brain injury or dementia pugilistica right, has been around forever. Like it's been around as long as we've been fighting, guys getting hit in the head with hammers. And so think about how many people have been exposed to these issues. And I see traumatic brain injury all the, all the time in civilians that have been in car accidents and stuff that everybody's like, oh, that's just Carl. And Carl looks different than he used to. He acts a lot different. And it's just, I mean, we've known about this since Phineas Gage, the effects of like damage to the brain. But now we're to the point where we understand subtle, nuanced changes can, you know, can be caused by these exposures. I would articulate this because this is a big reason people run into like, why do we need psychiatrists and all that stuff? You know, as society evolves, right? Life becomes more complex. I don't care who you are. You probably are doing whatever you're doing in life. No matter how simple you may think it is, you probably still run Excel, Microsoft, PowerPoint, and all these different things. We didn't do that 30 years ago or 50 years ago or 100 years ago. That level of complexity or the level that we had to work together, the level you have to function on a daily basis is only gotten more complex. Right. Uh, I, I read this article that basically talked about, uh, you know, how we become more technologically advanced, like your banking and all that stuff. It doesn't make life easier. It actually makes life a lot harder because now you're the banker. You know what I mean? Like you are now a banker and you are now a scheduler and you are now a typist. So all these things that make life easier actually make them more complex because now you do all those things. So if you're not emotionally well, like to the very, you remember Maslow's where it's like yeah. eating and sleeping at the bottom and highest functioning at the top. If you're not functioning at the highest top, you're going to have a rough life. You know, it's just, it's going to be difficult. So that subtle nuance damage and change, it, it's big. And yeah, we've been seeing more and more that these weapon systems exposure, that the weapon systems themselves cause soldiers damage and people aren't using the weapon systems correctly. There's some safety measures like blast cones and stuff like that people don't use because you know, it turns out in combat, people aren't thinking a whole lot about, you know, their long-term cognitive issues or thinking about surviving sure. right. issues. Yeah, no. Yeah, and getting through the battle is uh, much turns more. Out, it's yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like, I, I, I want to have to worry about what this is going to do to me 20 years from now. Because <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure I'm going to make it through the day. Yeah. Um, so then, I guess, our, you know, we, we've talked about the long-term effects and in the long-term exposure so would you say that are we set up and i guess we i i mean as a society but also i mean we as the dod are we ready for this epidemic like as more and more information is coming to light and more 
complex and challenging it becomes as we because when it was just shell shock it's just like all right dude like go walk it off yeah but now you know it's like give him a 96 he'll be fine when he comes back now we're realizing it's so much more than that and it's like you said it's at the cellular level are we ready to handle this no (laughs) okay (laughs) like no, but I mean that—that's medicine. Period. Our more nuanced understanding of what life is and how we deal with it. The, the question is: Is society ready to pay that bill? Um, and that's a big question. You know, most people's involvement in the United States wars in Afghanistan and Iraq were via news. You know, I mean, the vast majority of Americans didn't even know somebody in the military or at war. And so, you know, everybody's like, "Take care of soldiers. Take care of soldiers." And as we learn more about the cost of war and exposure-based issues with war. It's going to cost more. And the second part, I don't think the money is an issue. I think it's like the resourcing is an issue. Uh, this is one of my you know, issues associated with the VA is I, I think the mission is too, too wide. It's like everything to do with veterans. Like, okay, how, you know, like troop to task. You remember that stuff? It's like everything in the military. It's like, okay, yeah, we're going to have you do this and this and this and this and this and this. And these are all priorities over here. And you're like, I got 10 dudes, you know, I got two yeah. fire teams. What do, you, what do you want me to do? Like build a school. Here's a, you know, here's a pencil. And you're like, what? Like, how does that even happen? And so the question is when someone comes and says, take care of veterans, you're like, what? Uh, education, emotional well-being, domestic violence, like all these other things, like all these things. It's just like psychiatry. I get an hour and I got to go figure out, you know, what's going on with the patient. And it is complex. And I have to figure out what I can do in that hour. And I have to do troop to task. Like I can take care of his depression, maybe his PTSD, maybe make him feel a little less severe. I can't fix his family problems. I can't fix the, you know, six charges against him. I can't fix his, you know, raging drug habit right now. And so the question is, how do we create systems to be more intelligent on it? And in the military, the mission changes every day. Do you know what I mean? Like when I was walking out the door, we started shifting towards resiliency. Like how are we going to build resiliency, which is, don't get me started on that. But it's like, we're going to take our mental health resources to do that. And so that's a big question mark. That was final. My, my, my final, like, Hey guys, I'm out. <laughs> like, yeah. Thanks. Like, you know, I'm, a, I'm a, I view myself as somebody who takes care of people. Uh, and so like trying to make ninjas out of people, that's just not in my ballywick. And I'm like, we got a lot of guys that need to, you know, have foundations before we put fancy roofs on them. You know, like we, we just gotta, we, we break dudes. We need to fix them. Um, but that's what like, you know, it's constantly shifting. The mission always changes anybody from all the way from, you know, not even Congress, you know, like from the executive branch all the way down can make a change in what priorities are for the day. And that's a lot of zigzags. And so it's just hard to get, you know, soldiers in front of dudes to take care of them. So bottom line up front, no, like we are, we are not available. But the question is, what's going to change? We can compensate pretty easily. And I think compensation has gotten a lot better from your guys' time. Uh, like to help people out with compensation via disability. Like there's been better understanding after 20 years of war and injuries, uh, VA reps, and they do a great job of that. But the question is, how can you take care of people if there's no defined amount of people you have to take care of? There's only so much of you. Let's say, you know, you're a psychiatrist. How many people can you take care of well? So the encapsulation model uh, can you take care of 200? Can you take care of 500? Can you take care of 5,000? And where we get to in the VA or the military medical system is there's no limit. You right. will take care of whoever comes in the door. And what ends up happening is you just dilute down the person until the product isn't great. 
Um, cause you, you, you gotta take care of the ones on fire. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. It's like, like, well, this guy seems to be okay. I don't think he's going to kill himself. So let me just give him the general prognosis and then move on to somebody who actually, I think is going to be a real threat to themselves or society. Right. I mean, isn't that, it's just a sure. sort of economy of force, right? Let me, let me disimbue that somehow I could bore you with all sorts of case studies where psychiatry got involved in this. We cannot predict violence. We cannot predict behavior. Full stop. Yeah. That's yeah. it. No one can. I forget what it was. There's like some science article I was reading that was talking about basically, you know, you know how uh, you drop two balls and they hit each other and like the physics, classic physics problem. And they said like you, they can basically with simple or somewhat simple thing do about two or three impacts. But after that, you have to start taking into effect like the spinning of the earth because so many complex forces are hitting it. So to try to even have the hubris that you can predict human behavior, such as suicide, it's without worth. Like if you want to have the most accuracy for that, say everybody's fine, go home. And I'll be right 99.9% of the time. And it's just, so your ability to do that is, it doesn't exist. And so like that's, but, yeah. But then magnify that based off of what you're saying. Like, we'll just take everybody who comes in the door. So you're already going to have a hard enough time with one patient. Now you're just taking, it's like an Amtrak. You're just going to take one more. And just, yeah. So with one person, you can't predict who's going to commit suicide, period. Just, you can't. So, yeah. and the, the, the one thing we don't do a great job of saying, if I do the most conservative thing is to admit everybody that looks remotely suicidal, right? 50% of people that commit suicide don't even come to behavioral health, like right off the, the bat, right? They don't even see anybody. But when I admit you against your will, because I think you're suicidal or, you know, that you've done some behaviors, uh, the vast majority of people will not commit suicide, right? The, even if everyone's like highest of high risk, they still don't commit suicide. But now I've admitted you against your will. And, you know, I mean, that's a, that's a thing that causes yeah. harm. Uh, so that's just something to, to think about. There is harm from being too conservative. So you have to balance that somehow. Knowing that you can't figure out who's going to do harm to others and self and all that stuff is just, it's not possible. So how do you treat people? I mean, there's more data even coming out from like Germany that says that maybe we shouldn't even be admitting people. Hmm. You know I mean? Like involuntary committing people, like if they want to and they ask to come in, that's fine. Otherwise try to treat them at home. You know, instead of trying to predict who's going to commit suicide, if the people are asking for help, help them where they want to be helped. If they want to be helped inside a hospital, help them inside the hospital. If they want to be helped at home, help them at home. But you're right. There, there has to, my belief in an efficiency model, you know, this is industrial engineering 101. You've got to figure out how many people you need, how many resources you need to, to, to complete a product, whatever that product is, a treatment product. Uh, instead of if you just add too many people, you're just putting fires out. You're just trying to do... Hail Mary catches. And you may miss the people that are subtle and coming in and literally saying, you know, like the quiet guy from office space, you know what I mean? Like, well, I'm going to set the whole place on fire. And you're like, you can't hear it because you're too busy taking care of the guy screaming that they're going to kill themselves. That may never kill. I really appreciate your time here, man. I guess you're just looking at it. So then you take all of these other challenges uh, as we talk about that seem, you know, they're myriad. And then you add in the command climate and then you add in deployment cycles and this like need to be ready when the nation is least ready. You got, um, well, you know, I, I'm a company. I got to deploy with 180 or else I'm not a company. Um, you know, and if I could get up to 200, go closer, I get to 200, the more I can do more stuff I can do. Um, so, you know, I'm encouraging guys, Hey, you know, could you mind foregoing your dwell? Can I get some volunteers? Um, you know, I, I don't want to say it's something nefarious, but a lot of times, uh, especially when you don't have maybe a unit Oscar or somebody at your level, or you have a chaplain who maybe isn't as engaged, or he's brand new, he's new just like everybody else. 
And so you're, I don't know, what are some, am I inventing tensions? Are these real tensions? Like, no, that's, that's every bit the, the juggernaut's moving, right? And everybody knows that they're moving. And there's some people that select out early. Like there, there's nothing you're going to bring them along. And when you, when you choose to be done with the United States military, you're done, right? There's low utility in trying to force someone into that uniform. You know, if they're misbehaving and causing chaos, like they're just going to cause you more manpower, like get them the time, get them out. But there's the unspoken, like, hey, how about, you know, accessioning standards? Suddenly accessioning standards go lower when you need more soldiers. And it's just the name of the game. You got to meet mission, man. The mission has to be, mission's primary and it has to go. And a lot of soldiers are sucking wind and are trying. And so you don't want to take them out of the fight, right? You're like, I don't know if this guy should go on the deployment or I don't know if this guy should go on the training cycle. And sometimes people are like, hey, body body, everybody. Like, I get it. Okay, you're a little suicidal. We'll put you in, you know, the white cell for the training op. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. We'll be, you'll be eyes on 24 <laughs> seven. So it's like, I, it, it's, it's tough, man. And, but that is the duality of behavioral health in the military, which is you have uh, a mission. So you have a responsibility to command and responsibility to the soldier. And that's something a lot of civilians don't understand, but the juggernaut has to continue. It's just the name of the game, man. Um, so forcing someone who's suicidal and that's, I guess the, the difference is because everybody approaches differently. you got commanders like everybody and you're like uh please don't take the schizophrenic patient <laughs> like yeah <laughs> gonna cause a lot of problems he's not you know he's whatever and trying to find the guy who's like yeah he's not doing well but he wants to he wants to promote he wants to keep going he knows he has to go and do this mission because otherwise he won't promote and so how do we support that guy in there without causing mission failure you know man or causing you know because it's you know right it's two casualties or more the second someone has a problem um you know, you, they got to be evacuated. I did a lot of evacuations. I was at Craig Joint Theater Hospital evacuating people out of Afghanistan and take, it's a, it is like resource intensive getting those guys out of there. Um, and that's what prompted, it costs so much resources that that's what prompted a lot of CENTCOM commanders to say, no more, you have any behavioral health issues, you know, you need to be, you know, certain magnitude of behavioral health issues, you need to get cleared. And they spec, they put those out. That was like mod 15 and all that stuff, uh, which basically said, hey, we're evacuating too many people, the vast majority of evacuations for medical reasons were behavioral health. And so they're like, because the, the intensity of the fighting had gone down. And so it was just, they're like, hey, slow down. Let's evaluate who we're putting in the fight. Because um, it's so mission, and it, you know, it costs a lot of resource to get them out there. I'm not saying it's not worth it. I'm just saying it's a lot of, a lot of resource yeah. to get them out of it. Um, but you're right. There's a balance. And that's where the nuance, you know, that's where the, the time takes where you're like, hey, this is why we need behavioral health assets forward is to delineate between who can we treat in place who do we send home because getting sent home is devastating i mean it's one thing if you just want to be done but man it is devastating if it's not but if you have a suicide in theater it is brutal i've had my fair share of you know patient suicide both home side and otherwise when their units get exposed to it it's devastating because you get it from even guys who are like physically wounded they don't want to go and you know because they don't want to leave their you know their comrades they don't want to leave their unit while their unit is still on the fight and so to be told like kind of like you're saying like hey dude your your capacity to with to handle stress you're maxed out dude you got to go getting sent home as a casualty in that way has got to be detrimental in its own right because now they're all that regret and, and I don't know, like feelings of inadequacy or whatever that would be, however it manifests itself, that can't be an easy, easy transition on their end. It's not like they're going, Ooh, thank God. Like, you're right. I, my cup was full. You got me out right when I needed to. Right. Like there, yeah. no one says that. Right. There's, 
Yeah, I mean, I've had the whole game, but man, I've had guys who, you know, please send me home. I don't want to be here anymore. I've had, and there's been, you know, different parts of the war where it's like, sorry, bro, get back in the fight. Like this is where it's at. And I've had times where it's, you know, hey, just get the guy out. It's not worth it. I've had guys begging not to to go home that had to go home. They were suicidal. They were they were doing. They weren't saying they were suicidal then, but they've been doing every single piece that was like not healthy, um, and they just did not belong with a rifle in a war zone. Um, and I've had, and I've had guys, cause I've been on the receiving end too, right? For Bragg, you're sitting in the ER, you get all kinds of guys coming back that are just like, oh, I just wanted to go home and see my, you know, wife and then ended up shooting himself <laughs> like in front of his wife. It was, it's just the whole gambit. I can't say that that is a unique thing that you try to approach and do the best you can, knowing that you're not a wizard and you don't have a crystal ball and you try to maximize, my belief is you try to maximize the organizational's interest and the, the person's interest. Um, cause if you, if you maximize the, the person's interest, you say, whatever you need to do, we'll do right. You yeah. want to stay, stay, you want to go, go. But you know, if you're in a war zone, you need a mission, you need to complete that mission. You need to complete the mission. That's well, just the name of the game. Cause other people could die if that mission doesn't, you know, it doesn't happen. So it's just, it's, it's tough, man. It's very tough. So that's, that's another aspect that's difficult with it. Right. So you're trying to treat people while treating the organization too, cause you got two patients. You know, I, I did, I remember I did some presentations at the APA talking about that, you know, that duality of dual agency where you have an agency's interest. It's kind of like the FAA has some issues, you know, when you're trying to clear people for flying. I'm a flight surgeon as well. And part of that was, you know, can this person fly? And it, it's it's difficult. You know, can you really say, hey, the guy with depression can't fly? It's a, uh, it is tough. That That is something I do not miss from active duty anymore. Trying to figure out people's jobs <laughs> anymore. I'm glad to not have to do that because that is a difficult thing for a physician do wants to help the patient in front of them and sometimes you're like yeah you can't fly anymore because regulations say you're on antidepressant you can't fly you're on antidepressant you can't fly yeah which they're changing right now or they've changed but you know still that's a difficult process glad i don't have to do that anymore well so i mean you said that you know you've got basically two patients are does that mean that i mean for providers such as yourself and guys who are on the front line of this fight do you are you a patient of someone or because I mean obviously the buck doesn't stop with you guys and I mean as far as like exposure or stress it's got to be I mean this has to be a hard job uh, for you to be in the trenches as long as you have been right I mean what what is it what what is your guys's thing do you just see other psychiatrists or like it's uh yeah 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 colleagues, friends. I mean, that's the part the recruiter didn't tell you. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, no, I mean, you, you do what you can. A lot of the system, though, the, the issue is uh, you can't really get seen a whole lot for uh, behavioral health outside the system. So you have to be seen inside the system. And I have my own issues and I ended up just seeing internal medicine doc friends, you know, to see it because I didn't want to go see my colleagues to talk about behavioral health issues. And so it's tough, man, but that's part of the, the system and the system needs to know you're good to go. So you can't just escape the system. I mean, lots of people do. The system has tried to open up better things for you, like with um, called Inflex, which are like uh, marriage, family, life counselors that are basically off chart. But a lot of the issues are that, you know, when people become on chart, they have to go to the chart. Like, you know, they have to put stuff on it. But I can't say it enough. The Army has become, especially compared to some of his compatriots, like the Air Force and stuff, much more liberal with mental health issues. Uh, it's, you know, just much more liberal, even on your SF-86, anything related to a deployment, you don't even have to list on it. Uh, SF-86 for us, I assume it's the same for everybody's your, your background check stuff. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. 
And so you like schools, like you're probably not going to go straight into SF if you have issues anytime in the recent past, but you know, like most every, anything you can get into, you can do it with any kind of behavioral health history in the past, especially showing that you overcame it, got the care and then moved on. Army has been very good about adapting to that, just especially because man, one out of 10 people uh, in the unit, you know, like the military forces are on antidepressants. That's insane. Uh, it's just is what it is. Uh, it actually replicates much to society, you know, but these are younger, healthier people theoretically. I mean, one out of 10 kids in school right now have a diagnosis of ADHD. You know what I mean? So like, if you're saying, if you're trying to say no more behavioral health, you're going to have a tough time recruiting. Um, yeah. And 90% yeah. of those are treated with stimulants. That's a lot yeah. of people. Um, and I don't know, you know, I don't want to get into the whole, whether or not ADHD exists or anything, but you know, that that's a huge thing that yeah. the military has to adjust to. You know, they already talk about 75% of people aren't eligible for military service due to medical issues or obesity or, you know, educational problems. And so, you know, you have to, we have to accommodate. And so that's, I mean, we exploded in the, I can't remember which year it was, maybe 2013, we exploded 300% for our manning. Well, the slots exposed, you know, exploded 300%. The billets didn't. So that, right. that sorry, the billets exploded, but the people didn't. We didn't create more psychiatrists. We only have so many coming in. And so, you know, suddenly there were all these gaps in the mental health arena because we didn't have any of the people. It takes so long to make a psychologist, so long to make a social worker, so long to make a psychiatrist. So they just didn't have those spots, uh, which put more strain on the force. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we talked on the phone about the, the Oscar situation that we had. Yeah. Um, our Oscar was basically the division Oscar. And so the only time we'd see him was really like maybe a staff meeting here and there. And then uh, if we had an incident, then we had to, you know, call in the strike force. Um, but yeah, um, anyways, dude, I, I really, really appreciate your time. I guess the one question I have for you though, as we're closing out then is what advice or what sort of nuggets out of all of this for our listeners who are either experiencing mental health um, issues on their end or a commander who is also experiencing, but then is also in command of people who are experiencing, like, what would your advice be for our listeners as we, as we, you know, try to be uh, good stewards of uh, the people we're in charge of and, and really like in good faith, try to take care of our, our soldiers, sailors, air, airmen and Marines. I can't speak for the Air Force. Last time I dealt with the Air Force, they're very prickly about mental health. You know what I mean? I, I was deployed with an Air Force uh, facility. So they're very different when it comes to like the mental health issue, you know, the I think a lot of people are coming online with like the embedded behavior, what you call them the Oscars in the, in the Marine Corps, but everybody's yeah. starting to have them. And it's funny me talking to some of these guys that are now having issues related to that embeddedness, right? Because you're closer to command, which is good because you're more integrated. So when you wear the same patch, it makes life easier. You know what I mean? Like to get in and get belief, you know, like, because it's all about trust. It's all being part of the tribe. The biggest thing I could say is just, you know, if you're a mental health provider, get in the unit, like, yeah. I always had providers, especially that would like hide in the clinics and stuff like that. You can't, you can't win the game in the military being like that. Cause you're, you're them then, and you want to be us, not them. And right. so you got to get in the unit, you got to get into it, but you're going to open up just a Pandora's box of, you know, I, I, I can remember sitting there with one of my sergeant majors, you know, treating him, getting him through withdrawal. You know what I mean? Like, you know, he's withdrawn from alcohol and treating him in place. Cause you're just like, you're given these situations and you can either, you know, shun them and be like, go to the, the hospital. You treat them in place and take care of them where they're at. And it's just, it, it's a, it's a thing. Get the help. That's all I can say. The, the problems only get worse. 
Uh, and then we end up getting just not rolled into the domestic violence, alcohol, substance abuse, you know, conduct unbecoming, you know, affairs, you name it, just all these things, they, they, they nut roll me in. And when you're sucking wind, you know, you're probably the last one to know it. You know, everybody yeah. around you that loves you is the one to tell you like, you got a problem, you're too irritable, you're too on edge. And that's usually just because you're burning too hot. Um, Cause that intensity is rewarded in the military, right? You would like to get yeah. it's a hammer. He's the guy who's there, but that is double edge. You can't run that hot for that long. When you talk to anybody, you know, like you, you got to take your knees. And so leaders get the help. I think the leaders have become much more awesome. Rarely by the beginning of my career to the end of my career, man, their commanders were all over support. Like, give me the support. They wanted it. They're like, take care of my soldiers, do this, get in here, go talk to my soldiers. Where in the beginning it was like, you know, my guys don't have a problem. Get out of here. You know what I mean? So it's just night and day when it comes to that. But the problem is that demand signal went up and the manning didn't go up. <laughs> so it wasn't commensurate, but get the care, reach out, find it. It's there. It may not be easy. may not be clear. Um, yeah, but you, you just got to get the care. And if you're in the veterans, man, that's my, my big thing right now is I'm trying to find, you know, an efficient model to, to, to take care of veterans, but it's hard. It's very hard, but get the care. It's there. And a lot of things are, you know, this thing's like an incredibly complex monopoly game, if you know what I mean. And you don't know. So the first thing you do, if you have any reservations, is reach out and talk to somebody that you know that knows something about it. A unit social worker, anybody, and say, you know, I want to get behavioral health. I'm worried about filling the blank and then talk to them. Because we know it. You know, we've been doing it. We can quote retention standards, accession standards. I can quote UCMJ associated with whatever issues. You know, we can help you guide through that thing. But the end state is just get help because the problem only grows. And so you can white knuckle it for so long. You can drink, you know, do drugs, do something like that. But sooner or later, pops and there's an issue. So just get the care you need. Um, and the other part is, if you think there's a problem, and everybody telling you there's not a problem, just keep pushing until you find the right resource. Um, and so for the DoD, you know, at least the Army, like these Intrepid Spirit facilities are pretty good. They're coming online. Well, they've been online. They're getting more robust, especially for traumatic brain injury. Those are the best things chronic pain if you got the chronic pain get the care because a lot of guys only wait until the very end to get the chronic pain taken care of because they just you know ruck through it get it yeah. earlier because it just exacerbates and it'll just cause more trauma down the edge if you need to take some knees and then you no know, when are you gonna take a knee when you're going to you know your nco professional course now you can't take a knee then right and so there's no breathing space you're gonna take it before deployment but you gotta you gotta take the time for it and the mental health you know whether it's medications or, or therapy you just gotta find the right the right balance because it has to be one or the other like a lot of people you don't need both and you, you know the military medical system too though so it's like you go there and they're like well we won't do x-rays until after you've done physical therapy you're like but i, I think it's damaged like yeah right. and so they're like okay well now we can do x-rays you're like it's been like six weeks through this thing like why did we just do that and like civilian would not be like that if they're like hey i can't do the x-rays right away so in the military, they're like, oh, do therapy first, and then we'll start meds, and we'll do therapy plus your PCM, and then we'll do therapy plus your psychiatrist, and it's just, that's not how the civilian system is, and it's hard to get through, and sometimes you just get fed up. Already, it's hard. Antidepressants take time. You know, it's just, it's, but the same thing. You got to try them on. There's no antidepressant singly that works, so it's just, you got to have patience, but yeah. Yeah, patience, man. Patience is a virtue, which is hard to do, man. Um, luckily now, it seems like, you know, we got a little bit of time uh, that it'd be, to be overly colloquial, you know, to sort of lick our wounds. Um, we got some separation from at least the really bad stuff. Um, but, you know, one thing that's that you can predict is the military will be called to go do this stuff again. 
and there's no indication that it's going to be a flash fire. Man, it's like the way the world and sort of like you're talking about the interconnecting the interconnectedness. Um, anything that is going to explode and it's going to take some time and we're going to have a lot of people bringing a lot of baggage to the fight. Um, and so, well, dude, uh, I really appreciate you taking this much time, um, especially on a Memorial day, but I can't imagine a topic more important to talk about as we are in Memorial day. And so, dude, I thank you for sharing your expertise and uh, hopefully get a lot of feedback on this and maybe we'll get you back on and start talking about some of, you know, we could drill down a little bit on some more of these nuances, man, because they're very important, especially yeah. for those who have or are experiencing and then those who are leading those who are experiencing mental health issues, dude. So, hey, can thank I put you out so a plea before we go? What's that? Can I put out a plea request real quick? Please. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. If you guys, uh, if anybody's out there that is in mental health or physical medicine or anything that feels like they've cracked the code or, know an efficient model or feel like they're doing best practices, please reach out to me. Uh, I would love to, I would love to know more about what you're doing because you know, that's what we're trying to do. And I, it's, I know there's best practices hiding out there and I'm a student, a forever student and I want to learn. So if you know something that works, you know, reach out to me and let me know. Cause I would love to know. So. And how, how would, what's the best way to get in touch with you? It's uh, Adam Hunziker at yahoo.com. A-D-A-M-H-U-N-Z-E-K-E-R at yahoo.com. And if, you know something that's going on, man, shoot it out to me, send me an email, make connections because, you know, I, I, I am a firm believer that the solution is not going to be found for us. We're a bunch of, you know, we are people, we are a tribe of people that come up with our own solutions and we fix things, we get stuff done. And, you know, I think that's where we're at is we realize we are finally coming to grips with the emotional and psychological issues associated with these services. And we're finally coming to grips with we're not just drinking it, not talking about it. And so it's just one of those things where, you know, there's a best practice out there somewhere. There's some kind of group that's doing great treatment that I just don't know how to do. There's some hack to this system. And, you know, I, I believe in crowdsourcing issues. So if somebody knows something, somebody knows in a best practice, if some VA's humming that you just think that, hey, you cracked the code, send me an email so I can do the same thing here at Fort Bragg because, you know, I want to know the answer. Awesome, dude. Yeah, we'll definitely put that in the show notes too and yeah. encourage everybody to reach out to us and to reach out to you. Uh, this is an extremely important issue, obviously. Um, and kind of like you said, about the time that you realize you have a problem, you've probably already done a bunch of stuff. Yeah. Um, and there's a ton of flags and indicators prior to it. And you don't want to be that person looking in the review going, man, I could have got in front of this thing. Um, yeah. And I was just too proud or I was just too busy or, you know, fill in the blank on the, the two part. Uh, but we just we can't continue to uh, kick this can down the road any further. I agree. So, as you know, as you know, man, I had 15 years and you, you know, had to step away. So I know I'm preaching to the choir. But anyways, dude, so great to see you again. Yeah. Congratulations on all your successes. Dude. I'm so proud of you. It's weird to say because you're not my brother, but I feel in some way uh, you are family, dude. So I'm, I'm super stoked for everything you got going on and and. Um, yeah, thanks again for taking the time to be on the show, man. Thanks. Thanks for the opportunity. I love it. Thanks. All right, dude. Take it easy. Yep. Scuttlebutt is a production of the Marine Corps Association. I am Nick Wilson. That is Major Vic Rubel, U.S. Marine Corps retired. You have also heard the voices of or contributions from William Truding or Nancy Lichman, editors of Gazette and Leatherneck Magazines, respectively. 
Opinions expressed in Scottlebutt are just that, opinions, and do not represent any official stance of the MCA.